guys, it's Melissa. Since we're an independent podcast, your support means the absolute world, whether that's on social media, in a podcast review, or a word of mouth recommendation. If you've been enjoying this podcast and would like to take it a step further, I now have a support feature where you can contribute a one-time donation at whichever price you'd like. Click the link in the episode description to learn more. Thanks guys, now enjoy the show. The Sisterhood of the Bottomless Mimosa. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the pod. This is Melissa, and you are listening to Mimosa Sisterhood, where we pop bottles and celebrate women's wild and crazy and chaotic and hectic ass stories. Okay, we don't do that every episode, but today that is absolutely what we're doing. I am super amped. Today we've got a fun, well, I don't know that I'd say fun, but we have a Halloween episode. And it occurred to me a couple of days ago that I should probably release a Halloween themed episode. And so I pulled this shit together on the fly and we are doing it. It's just you and I today on this podcast, no guests. So the next hour is just me and you, baby. And I can't wait for it. All right. Halloween is this week. It's this coming Sunday. It's 2021. We're allowed to leave our houses. We can go out and trick or treat. Life is feeling a little bit more normal this week, and I am super excited about it. I mean, I'm 32 years old, so I don't exactly trick or treat anymore, but I am over the moon because this Halloween, I am going to a concert at the Hollywood Bowl. It's outside, don't worry. But it's my first big concert since the pandemic began. And I'm literally just, I cannot even contain myself. I am so excited. So as some of you might know, if you've been listening to this show for this entire time we've been alive, I am a huge Grateful Dead fan. Have been for the past 12 years or so. And I'm going to go see Dead & Company. If you don't know who Dead & Company is, it is the remaining surviving founders of The Grateful Dead, Bob Weir, Phil Lesh, as well as everybody's favorite, John Mayer. I was never a John Mayer fan, like, at all when he was doing all those lovey-dovey, like, romantic songs and people were just drooling over him. I wasn't a fan. But the day that I witnessed him play some Grateful Dead... I dropped dead. I I understood the appeal. And now I'm in love. So super amped on that. That's my Halloween plans this week. And um, other than that, I'm carving pumpkins, making pumpkin seeds, eating pumpkin bread, and drinking pumpkin spice liqueur in my coffee every morning. And that's what we're drinking today on the pod. It's currently the morning time, so I have spiked my delicious cup of coffee, which I typically drink black coffee every day of my life, but not when it's pumpkin spice season. So yeah, I've got some pumpkin spice going. It is absolutely incredible. Shout out to my favorite Trader Joe's. You literally live for the basic bitch, and I live for you and also all things basic bitch. So really feeling myself today. And I'm really feeling today's episode. I was like, all right, what are we going to do for Halloween? 
I'd had this woman on my list for a very long time, and I hadn't covered her yet because it just wasn't calling to me, but today it is. And I am so happy that I looked into this this week because once I really did a deep dive on her life and looked into numerous resources, so many articles, so many YouTube videos, a few documentaries, once I got the full picture on this woman's life, I was like, holy shit, are you freaking kidding me? Like, you guys, you have no idea what you're about to hear. And it's wild because I thought I was just doing like a really cool freaking Halloween episode, but like, no, 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 no. There is way more to unpack here outside of Halloween. So today I am telling the story of Mary Shelley. She is the English novelist who wrote Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, which it was originally named back in 1818. And her novel is considered to be one of the world's first examples of science fiction writing. So already really cool. And who doesn't know or love Frankenstein? I mean, I'm going to be honest with you guys. I've never read Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein. It's it's on the list. I couldn't read it in one day before I recorded this podcast. So I'm planning to read it after this goes live. And even worse, I've never seen the original Frankenstein, the black and white, like silent version, I think it is. I've never seen it. But I have seen more recent modern 20th century versions of Frankenstein. And I feel like Frankenstein is just like a very common staple that is related to Halloween. It's just Halloween, right? Like, who doesn't know Frankenstein and who doesn't relate that to Halloween? Well, I've got to be honest with you, this episode talks about Frankenstein for like three minutes (laughs) because it is honestly quite possibly one of the least interesting things about Mary Shelley. I mean, I think it's unbelievable and fascinating that she wrote this gothic novel when she was only 20 years old, but her life in a whole is fucking nuts. More nuts than this monster Frankenstein. So I have to preface and let you know that this story is dark. It's weird. It has some pretty tragic themes. If you are somebody that is sensitive to hardship, I advise not listening further because we get real and we get dark in Mary's story. So just just tread lightly. But before I jump in, a couple quick reminders. First up, I love you. Thank you to everybody who's out there and listening. Your support means the absolute world. And I'm just so grateful that I get to do this and that I have people out there like you that tune in and enjoy these episodes. So thank you. Um, If we have any new listeners out there, so happy you found us. We're a women's history podcast. We celebrate women's stories, good, bad, ugly, and of course the bubbly because we like to get crunk over here in the club. We also have an Everyday Woman series, which is interviews with the everyday woman. And they're incredible, super inspiring, and just a really awesome way to learn more about the things that women go through 
in our time period. So I hope you stick around. And if you haven't yet, definitely subscribe to the podcast on your favorite streaming platform. And also, if you have some time, a star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts goes so far. It is the best way to show your love and support for this show. And it really helps us find other listeners out there that don't know that we exist. And it could potentially convince Apple Podcasts to bump me up in the history categories or even feature my show on their new and noteworthy page. So all things I would love to happen at some point in the lifetime of this podcast, but it's even more possible with your help and your support in doing things like rating and reviewing, uh, commenting on social media, sharing with your friends this podcast. So all the things you already know about, just another friendly reminder of how important and impactful they actually are to the podcast. So thank you guys again for listening and let's get fucking down and dirty. Are you guys ready for this? Because I'm not exaggerating. Shit gets wild. So Grab your Reese's pumpkin and a fucking Jack and Coke. You're going to need both to get through the crazy twists and turns of Mary Shelley's story. All right, let's do this. Mary Shelley was originally born Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, on August 30th, 1797, in Summerstown, London. Straight off the bat, Mary was just destined to have a memorable life. She was the daughter of two hardcore radical people that made their own massive marks in history. So her father was William Godwin, and he was a philosopher, a political writer, an atheist. He actively argued against institutions, the government. He was wild and out in the 1700s, and people were like low-key afraid of him. Her mother was a very, very famous women's rights feminist. Her name was Mary Wollstonecraft, who This Mary Shelley was obviously named after. They have the same name. And uh, her mom was just as fierce as her dad. They both stood for things that they were very passionate about. And they were topics that were very taboo and definitely against the grain during these very conservative times in the 17 and 1800s. In fact, being an openly an out atheist was like the devil walking on earth. People were petrified that anybody would, one, be an atheist and, two, talk about it and celebrate it. So her parents were already causing quite a bit of chaos before Mary was even born. Now, there's a bit of scandal surrounding Mary's parents outside of the fact that they were just complete radicals. So a little backstory here. Before Mary's mother met her father, William, she had had a fling with an American dude and ended up getting pregnant out of wedlock, which obviously was a big no-no. Her daughter was named Fanny, and the minute she was born, her American lover fled the scene and abandoned the both of them right after the birth. This was really hard 
for Mary to get through. She fell into a depression and she experienced a lot of darkness after this happened. Then Mary and William met. And straight off the bat, they hated each other, probably because they were so much alike, but they eventually fell in love and they had one major thing in common. They were both heavily against the institution of marriage. But Mary sort of got pregnant by William again out of wedlock. So she convinced him to marry her because she was honestly afraid of like what the public would do you know she'd already been like marked with the scarlet letter one time before now it's happened again so they were like fuck it let's just get married and appease these fucking prudes when mary got pregnant it was with baby mary shelley who we're talking about today and so 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 sad her mother mary wollstonecraft died 12 days after the birth. It turned out she had gotten an infection in her uterus, and they just did not have the science back then to know this was happening or cure it, so she passed away. Now, Mary's dad, William, is a widow with two young children, Fanny, his stepdaughter, and Mary, his biological daughter. Growing up, Mary obviously did not know her mother personally, but she studied her mother's written work endlessly and for hours and hours on end. And she would often hang out at her mother's gravestone and read her books and spend time with her in the limited capacity that she had available. So she kind of developed a relationship with her mom at least this hardcore feminist activist side, because that's all she knew. She didn't know her mom personally as a mother, but she did have all of this written scripture of like what her mother cared about, what she was passionate about, what she loved, and what she was fighting for. And that was the person that Mary was able to sort of like develop a bond with. And after the mother's death, William, the father, decided to write an autobiography about his late wife. And this really stirred up some drama around town. And it gave the entire family a very bad reputation as if they didn't already have a strained one already. So in this book, William talked about him and Mary bumping uglies before marriage, which, hello, again, this is not acceptable. In this time period, he also discussed Mary's previous affair with that American lover and the fact that she had a daughter out of wedlock. So uh, red flag number two. And he even discussed her attempted suicide when she discovered that her American lover was cheating on her and then left her. So, yes, Mary Wollstonecraft had attempted suicide after this happened. All of this information was way too much scandal for this very conservative community. They were so delicate, they were so fragile, and they just could not handle it. So rumors spread, reputation was tarnished, and I mean, they were just the talk of the town in a very, very negative light. Also, this autobiography really jeopardized Mary's reputation as a respectable feminist because all of this info about her past basically labeled her a whore 
And therefore, anything she ever argued in terms of women's rights was like completely stripped away because now she was just a whore. So it really backtracked all this progress she'd made where at one point people really respected her views and, you know, could stand behind her in her determination to fight for women's rights. But once all her baggage got put on fucking display, they were like, oh, just kidding. You're a whore. You're a witch. You know, the usual. So that's like, that's pretty fucked up. And kind of like annoys me that her father, William, like didn't maybe consider that that might, you know, be the end result. Now, another important thing to note, now that I've given you some pretty good info on Mary's parents, it's not that surprising that Mary would grow up to also be a very radical, progressive, liberal type of person since she was bred from the king and queen of radical lifestyles and because she was exposed to it by her father for her entire life. So William ended up remarrying their next door neighbor named Mary Jane Claremont. We've got three Marys now. Was everybody freaking named Mary? Well, anyway, once again, he got another woman pregnant before marrying them. How many times is this going to happen? He married Mary because Mary got pregnant. But that's not all. Mary had two other children from previous affairs with two different dads. So right now we've got William, his new wife, Mary, Fanny, his stepdaughter, Mary, his biological daughter, Jane, his new stepdaughter, and Charles, his new stepson. And they've got another child on the way. So a shitload of kids, half of them, all of them for the most part, aren't even related with Parents who have had numerous pregnancies out of wedlock. The whole entire universe is having a meltdown. Everybody's having a panic attack. Who is this scandalous family? They are nothing of what the American dream should be. People are triggered. Now, Mary hated her stepmom, Mary. And uh, she sometimes insinuated that this woman was like an evil stepmom. However, most of history denies that she really was that evil. There was one situation that occurred that I guess could lean in this direction of evilness where the stepmom sent her biological children off to school, but she did not allow that same opportunity to William's kids. So Fanny and Mary. William's original children did not get the opportunity to attend a legitimate school situation. However, Mary's other kids, Jane, William, and the new baby that ends up getting born one day, they all get to go and have a full-blown education. So I think that caused a little bit of scuff between the family, but also like what, William couldn't decide that his own kids could go to school? Like what? I don't know, whatever. So Mary hated her. She hated this woman, but I think it really was more about the fact that she, how all kids hate their new step parents. Like, who is this adult? Why are you around? Who are these weird kids you brought into my life? Like, what the hell's going on? You're screwing up our vibe. I want it to be me and my dad and my little sister. Who are all these people? So I think it was just like the typical aggression that young children initially experience when their entire household sort of flips upside down. But I don't actually think she was as evil as Mary maybe 
described her to be. Regardless, Mary acted like a real shit asshole her entire childhood and caused an insane amount of chaos in the family home. It got so wild and crazy that they eventually shipped her off to Scotland to go live with some family friends for a while because she was just causing so much havoc in the house. But she eventually came home and I imagine that break away from her was much needed among all in the home. Now, their dad, being the philosophical man that he was, had a lot of writer and poet friends who came and went all day and all hours in and out of the family's home. They'd come over and have intellectual conversations about society and politics, and William made sure that his children were exposed to all of this. He wanted them to hear these conversations. He wanted to involve them in the convo and, you know, get their feedback and their perspective and just, I guess, in a sense, give them the education that the stepmom, you know, didn't allow them to have. And it paid off. I mean, his kids were really fucking smart. They were intellectual. They were critical thinkers. They had so much access to the world's most intellectual people during this time period and were reading all of William's books. He had an entire library jam-packed with like so much shit that they could read. So ultimately, you know, even though they didn't go to school, they were very intelligent and they had very advanced perspectives, um, far beyond their age range. However, although this all sounds nice and dandy, there was a little scandal on the horizon. So William was obviously naive as fuck, thinking that inviting countless men into his home all day and all night in the company of his very cute teenage daughters, like he didn't think like, hmm, maybe this is a bad idea. Well, it was because one of the dudes that he brought into his house was 21-year-old Percy Bishelli, who was a radical reformist, a poet, an atheist, and the son of a very, very rich and wealthy landowner. Percy's dad hated his guts because Percy was like out here caring about politics and poetry and he was giving all of his money away to like social and political justice situations. So he would come over to William's home and have all these intellectual conversations and then just like give him a shitload of money because William came from this place that like he was doing all of this incredible work for society and that people should be like funding his brain, basically. And Percy, like, fell for that shit. So he was giving oh William, like, all of his family's money and ultimately helping William get out of debt, which he was in a lot of debt. And so this strange relationship between him and Percy was kind of weird because Percy really admired William, really valued those conversations and the opportunity to be in his home and talk about, like, all this wild social shit. But William was really more kind of using him for money. But in any case, Percy meets 16-year-old Mary. And this is where shit gets fucking nuts for the rest of the entire story. You know how people sometimes say, you were the worst thing that ever happened to me? I think that's like a pretty factual statement in terms of the day that Percy met Mary. So Percy and Mary meet at her home and... They hit it off. They're having all these convos. Nothing seems weird. Everybody's having cool convos. 
But they eventually start going on like long walks together outside of the house. And they go to Mary's mother's graveyard, which is where she would pretty much spend most of her time, like all of her childhood. But Mary wasn't really allowed to just like wander off alone with Percy. So her younger sister, Jane, tags along as like a sort of chaperone, I guess. Now, a couple things about Jane. Jane is the stepsister. She's one of the biological daughters of the stepmother that William ends up marrying, the neighbor. Jane eventually later in life changes her name to Claire. And I think she like historically is better known as Claire. So I'm just going to call her Claire for the rest of this episode to just like make it easier. No, no, like Jane Claire to name thing is not going to work. So Claire is now chaperoning Mary and Percy into the graveyards while they wander off and have these fantastic conversations and get a little flirting going. So while in the graveyard, Mary and Percy talk all about life. You know, they're doing the damn thing. They're super smart and they have all these radical beliefs and they're just like absolutely falling in love. All while poor little Claire sits off to the side, all awkward like the third wheel. It's rumored that Mary might have lost her virginity in this graveyard, in her mother's graveyard, near her mother's tombstone. And this is a very common thing that comes up many of times when people look up Mary Shelley. Like, it's like, you know, again, the scarlet letter that stamped on her, the girl that banged it out in the mother's graveyard. And I looked into this. I read multiple different resources. Every single one insinuated that this legitimately happened. And if you think about it, if Mary really was hooking up in the graveyard with Percy, Her sister was, like, loitering around, like, steps away? I don't know. Very weird. Very strange. Now, if that's not weird enough to just, like, you know, add a little sparkle to this situation, Percy was married and his wife was pregnant. And Mary knew all of this. Didn't give a fuck. Hashtag DGAF. So... (laughs) This little fling is going on for quite some time, and Mary's dad, William, is completely oblivious until one day Percy busts through the door of his house and declares his love for Mary and states that he wants to whisk her off out of the country and run away with her. So William is like, I'm sorry, what the fuck did you just say? And was like in complete and utter shock that like, one, you're banging out my daughter. She's 16. What the hell's going on? And two, you want to whisk her out of the country and run away with her? Like, hell effing no. Who the hell do you think you are? At this same time, William also learns that Percy is no longer going to be able to fund his social and political injustice gatherings because his family has now cut him off from the money because they found out he was just blowing it on like the boys club. So William is now like triple the amount of pissed off because this guy's banging his daughter and now he's not going to be giving him money anymore. So naturally, like any father would do, he forbades Mary and Percy from ever seeing each other again. But Mary couldn't understand why. And I've got to be honest, I feel like she has a point here. Because in Mary's perspective, she'd found the perfect guy. She found the guy that was an exact replica of her father, 
a guy who also embodied a lot of the same views that her mother had in terms of like, fuck marriage, fuck the institution, free love, all of these same things that her parents accompanied within themselves and also actively exposed her to. So she's like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, Everything you've ever preached to the choir, I've found and I'm now like jumping on board with. And now you're telling me I can't do it? Like, that doesn't make any sense. So without surprise, she said, screw you. And her and Percy took off to France. But wait, <laughs> here's the kicker. Good old stepsister Claire joined them as the third wheel on their little romantic rendezvous getaway. Now, why in the world would Third Wheel Claire run off with these starstruck lovers? Seems kind of weird, right? Well, rumor has it she wasn't exactly a Third Wheel after all, and that she might have been developing her own relationship with Percy on the DL. So... In regards to numerous resources I've read, people believe that Claire had, like, more of an emotional connection with Percy. No one really thinks that, like, at this time specifically, she was doing the dirty with him. But, like, it's pretty well understood that there was some kind of spark happening and fling developing to the point that she would think it would be okay for her to run away as well. Because why would she be left out when she's not left out at all in general? So these three youngins take off to Paris. They are traveling by donkey, mule, carriage, and on foot through France, which had recently been ravaged by war. And then they ultimately end up in Switzerland. So as they're traveling, Mary and Percy are reading the books by her, her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft. And they kept their own combined journal where they would both write like little diary entries and have this cute little fucking thing that they were doing together. And um, they were on an adventure, really. And they saw a lot of shit. Like I said, it was war-torn France. They witnessed a lot of fucked up stuff. Like they were traveling through like a death graveyard, basically. The war had like just ended. And so... I think this was like a pretty impactful time for the three of them because they were like young kids that had run off and fled the country and were like experiencing and witnessing like real life matters all while they were having their own little fucking sister wife partnership. So anyway, they're out living their best lives until they run out of money. No real shocker here. So the three musketeers head back to England. And what do they do when they return home? Well, the obvious, of course, they head straight to Harriet's front porch, Percy's real wife, and they ask her for money. Because why the fuck wouldn't she fund her husband's little sex scandal with two teenagers? But it gets worse. Because not only does Percy ask her for money, he also is like, oh, by the way, we're looking for a third sister wife. Want to join the party? And she's just like, I'm sorry. Are you high? Like, fuck you. Fuck you. No. So she's absolutely furious over this invitation. 
And she ends up just like giving this dude money because I think at this point she's just like, God, you're such a sack of shit. Take this money and bounce the fuck out. Like, I don't ever want to see you again. And that's pretty much how that played out. So after this little pit stop at Harriet's house, they then head over to Mary and Claire's father's house, William, who is obviously pissed AF that his daughters, who just ran off out of the country, have finally returned on their little expat adventure. And they're just like casually knocking on the door like, yo, what up, pop? So he's mad as hell. And he basically wants nothing to do with them, like will not make eye contact, will not speak to them, makes it very clear that they are chopped effing liver and he's done with them. And so this is the first point in Mary's life where she experiences legitimate banishment from not only just people in general, but her father, who was her last living relative and somebody that she loved and admired And, you know, this was really hard for her. You'd think that maybe she'd take that as a wake up call to be like, oh, no, maybe I'm doing something wrong here. But um, she did not. And again, I feel like we can't really blame her since she was raised in an environment that really, you know, promoted her to do whatever the fuck she wanted, especially if it was out of the norm. (laughs) Out of the acceptable norm. So let's just like review the scene here. We've got Percy back in England. He has no job. He has no money because his rich dad cut him off. He's also ostracized from his own family, as well as now Mary and Claire are ostracized from theirs. And now he's responsible financially for taking care of his actual legal wife, Harriet, plus their two children, as well as Mary and her little sidekick sister, Claire. On top of this, Mary is starting to get really fucking tired of Claire hanging around. She's like, dude, when the hell are you going to kick rocks? I'm sick and tired of you loitering on my relationship. And I'm starting to feel like there might be something else going on here. And I'm not really that cool with it. So tension is high. Everyone is stressed out. They are so freaking poor. The whole world hates them. And boom, what better thing to happen at this period than for Mary to get pregnant with Percy's child? So now Mary's pregnant. (laughs) And um, don't forget, Harriet was also pregnant. Remember? Remember when their little affair started? Harriet was pregnant. Well, uh, Mary gets pregnant and now Harriet is finally having her baby. So uh, Percy's son is born and he's pretty damn stoked about it. He's like, oh, shit, I have a son. Harriet finally gave birth. Like, hell yeah, I've got a son. This is awesome. Meanwhile, Mary is like raising her hand like, hello, what do you mean? Like, I'm your lover and I am now recently pregnant with your child. Like, why are you like so excited about the son that Harriet bore for you? Honestly, All I can say is, like, thank God birth control finally got invented because this shit was popping off and, like, it was, like, all these births were causing a hell of a lot of problems for people. So Mary's not in a very good place. She's pregnant as fuck. She's sick. She feels like shit. Percy is, like, over the moon about his new baby with Harriet, which is making her super jealous. Claire, like, who knows what the hell's happening with Claire? Apparently, Percy's just, like, 
gone a lot with Claire, which we can only imagine what's happening there. And um, at one point, Percy offers his pregnant wife up to one of his friends who had expressed interest in getting it on with this very pregnant woman. And Percy was just like, oh, yeah, dude, have at it. Literally to the point that he approached Mary and was like, yo, homeboy over there wants to bang it out. You down. Like, how weird do these people have to get? And also, how weird is this is this in general in a time period where like shit like this wasn't even allowed to be happening? You weren't allowed to be doing all this banging it out and getting all these people pregnant and just fucking around and sharing each other's wives. Like, this is so uncommon that the fact that all of these things keep occurring in a time where like it was not acceptable. It's just wild to me, like, how open and outward they are about their unconventional lifestyles, knowing how much it would tarnish their reputations and how much it would ostracize them from the world they lived in. I mean, they just, they did not give a shit. So I guess all the power to you people. In any case, Mary obviously declined that uh, little sexual scandal offer. Um, even though she was really kind of an advocate of free love. So I think this was kind of further proof that while she apparently did believe all of these progressive and liberal thoughts on relationships, love, and sexuality, she, like, ultimately deep down inside, like, probably really just wanted to be with Percy and have, like, a more stable, serious, committed relationship with him. Now, we get to some pretty seriously sad shit next. Mary gave birth two months early to a premature baby girl who eventually passed away a few short weeks later. The loss of her child threw her into a very deep depression, and she was haunted by visions of her baby regularly. She would go on to have a total of five pregnancies with only one child surviving before she was 25 years old. Oh my God, can you imagine that? So down the line, she eventually does have a successful pregnancy with a boy that they named Percy after his father. But, you know, it's a, it's several years in which Mary is getting pregnant, losing babies, getting pregnant, losing babies, to finally having a baby, and then, again, getting pregnant and losing more babies. And this was a really, really hard time in her life. Like, very bad. She was so depressed, so heartbroken had way too much trauma than one person can handle in such a short amount of time. And um, it was really causing a very serious strain in her relationship with Percy, which is not surprising in the slightest. Like, if I went through that, I would just want to be alone in a dark room and not hear another person's voice for, like, months at a time. But, you know, men aren't cool as shit like that. So, uh, of course, he started getting a wandering eye. Their relationship was just getting really strained. And um, they just, I mean, they were together, but like shit really wasn't that good for a long time. Meanwhile, uh, 
Mary, Percy, their son, and stepsister Claire decide to all go travel together to spend a summer in Switzerland with a friend that they met on their previous trip to Switzerland. His name was Lord Byron. He and Jane had had this fleeing going on for a while. I'm kind of like, can't figure out the exact timeline on this. I'm not totally sure if their fling happened in their original trip to Switzerland when they all ran off together or if it happens on the second trip when they return back. But in any case, Lord Byron was a well-respected lord and uh, he was a great poet and a writer and he had like a good thing going for him with his career and everybody knew this. And so... Claire at one point had decided that she wanted to be a writer, just like every other effing person on earth during this time period. And so when they had met Lord Byron, she kind of realized like, yo, this guy can probably help me in my career. Let me see what kind of magic I can work here. And so she basically hits him up and is like, hey, I have this manuscript I'd love for you to read. Can you check it out? And he was like, sure, absolutely. And Lo and behold, she, like, tosses the manuscript and just, like, straddles this dude and is like, let's get freaky deaky, homie. And he's just like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> like, what? Excuse me? What's happening here? I'm so confused. And he's not into her. Like, he's just not into this girl. And so, like, he rejects her a bunch of times, but she won't freaking let up. And eventually he gives in. And so they bang it out. She gets pregnant. What a shocker! So the four of them, Mary, Percy, Claire, and Lord Byron, they're hanging out. They're, they all become, like, really close friends. Um, they all kind of, like, feed off each other's interest in writing. They spend a lot of time together reading and writing things. And uh, one day, it's, like, pouring rain in Switzerland, and they can't leave the house or do anything. So they're all cooped up inside, and Lord Byron decides to entertain the group by reading a book of ghost stories. They're having a grand old time reading these ghost stories. And then Lord Byron suggests like, hey, we should all take a stab at writing our own horror stories. And this is what kickstarted Mary's infamous novel, Frankenstein, or the original name, Modern Prometheus. So Mary wrote Frankenstein when she was 20 years old, and she originally wrote it anonymously without putting her name on the book as the author. However, she did include a dedication inside the book to her father, William, and uh, without surprise, that caused quite a bit of scandal because everybody on Earth hated their whole family. The last name Godwin had, like, a fucking black skull attached to it of death, like, They were the Grim Reaper. Everybody saw that name and was like, oh, my God, we can't be a part of this. These people are horrible. So this caused the book Frankenstein to be rejected by three different publishers straight off the bat before it was finally accepted and published in 1818. And by the 1820s, Frankenstein was turned into a play and had become a very, very, very successful play with like multiple different variations. Like every play was a little different from the last and the story kind of twisted and turned a little bit with each different version. It was like evolving over time and like changing quite a bit from the original written text of Mary Shelley's novel. So 
to talk a little bit about the novel. The original story that Mary Shelley wrote is about a scientist whose name is Victor Frankenstein, and he creates an artificial man from a dead corpse or like multiple dead bodies, and he brings a creature to life. So this creature or monster is originally gentle, he's intelligent, he's enormous, but he's also like ugly AF. He's terrifying to look at. And so when he's created, this this monster seeks affection from his creator and like wants to be homies, but eventually he just inspires like hatred out of everybody he meets because they're so like disgusted and mortified by him. And that includes his creator, Dr. Frankenstein. So the monster becomes super lonely and sad and it ends up turning on his creator and like fucks him up and kills him. So kind of a dark story, (laughs) like dark as shit. And also you'll notice the story that we all know and love today features Frankenstein, the monster. But in reality, Frankenstein was the name of the doctor and the monster didn't have a name at all. So that's pretty much the number one thing that evolved over time and um, really changed from the original writing of Mary Shelley's. So many people believe that Mary actually intended to depict her own self in this monster character because she lived the majority of her her young life like generally hated by the public. And that's very similar to the way that the monster lived his life. Both of these people, Mary and the monster, were in their own minds and perspectives just trying to be loved and love and, you know, live a good life. But in reality, you know, they just were never accepted by the public. So this story explores so many different philosophical themes, and it ultimately challenges romantic ideals about the beauty and the goodness of nature. Now, the interesting thing is that Frankenstein didn't really blow up and become like this huge thing, the staple in pop culture, until the 1980s. The 1980s! She wrote it in 1818. Like, what in the world? How did it take so long? It did not reach the level of fame that it is today for fucking a billion years. And the main reason for that is the fact that society was legitimately pissed off that William's name was in the book. Like, like I said earlier, the name held so much like disdain that no one even wanted to read Frankenstein because of it. They wanted nothing to do with Frankenstein, William Godwin, Mary, like they just, everybody hated that family. So Frankenstein got no love. And um, I mean, Mary did make money off of it, but it wasn't enough to make her famous and rich and live this lavish lifestyle. It just was a book that she wrote. Also, another important note is that there has been like numerous arguments over the fact that like, did Mary Shelley even write Frankenstein? Did Percy write Frankenstein? Who wrote the book? And of course, like, haters gonna hate. Everyone's gonna be like, Percy wrote the book, not Mary, because like men, you know, are fucking heroes of the world. But based off Mary's own accounts, Percy's role in the creation 
of Frankenstein was really more of being like a support system that urged her and pushed her and inspired her to even write the story. And he also offered her a lot of guidance on the way. So I kind of think of his role as being similar to like what an editor is for an author today, where editors work with the author and, you know, they read the story and they suggest revisions or a better way to develop characters, like whatever the hell they do. Like that's what I imagine Percy was to Mary while she was writing this story. And um, newsflash, she wrote the damn story. So start giving her fucking credit. So now after Frankenstein was officially published, Mary continued to write her entire life. She was a full-blown professional writer, which somehow is escaped in her story historically. Uh, Most people look at her as a one-book author. Like, this was her one-hit wonder. It wasn't. She wrote a lot of shit. She uh, worked as a writer for Lord Byron in helping him produce whatever he was writing. She worked with Percy on what he was writing. So she had a large influence with other writers, as well as writing a lot of her own books. But she also used writing as sort of a coping mechanism to get through a lot of hardship that she experienced in her life, which I can relate. I wrote for years when I was in my teenage years, in my 20s, and girl, I was going through some shit, and writing seriously helped me get through the shit that I was going through. So I totally can relate to that. Um, But newsflash, there's still a lot more hardship to come in Mary's life. Like, we aren't even remotely close to finishing up the trauma. So on their return back to England from Switzerland, Mary and Percy move in with Claire, and they pretty much, like, make a pact to help keep her pregnancy a secret, because uh, remember, Lord Byron got her pregnant. I'm not totally sure why they want to keep it a secret. I think, like, in order to, like, prevent any further damage to the family's reputation, because now there's another person that's pregnant out of wedlock. Um, and I think also they were they didn't want their father to find out because like he was already hating their guts and ostracized them. And I think this would have been like, you know, the tip of the iceberg. And also, I think William, their father, was more pissed at Mary than Claire, because I think he knew deep down that Mary had a very large influence on Claire and was probably the one like streamlining all this radical ass behavior. And Claire was kind of just like following along. So I think he felt like more angry with her that she dragged her stepsister into this. So if he also found out that now Claire was pregnant with this dude who like lived in Europe, I think he'd be like pretty bit pissed about it and blame Mary for that. So they all went back to England. And when Mary got home from her trip, she discovered that there were numerous letters waiting for her that her younger half-sister Fanny had written. She opened up these letters and like it's very clear that something is very, very wrong. So the first letter basically alludes that Fanny is extremely unhappy in her life and just saying that she's going through hard times and just like really struggling. And then the next letter has an even darker theme to it that was so alarming. Mary basically asked Percy, like, get the hell over to Fanny's house and like see what's going on. Like she needs help. 
But unfortunately, it was discovered that Fanny was found dead in a room at like a hotel or an inn. And she had a suicide note with her and that she had overdosed on an opium tincture and she killed herself. No one knows why, nor did they ever find out. So this was really fucked up and was really tragic. But two days later, or like a couple of days later, they then find out that Percy's wife, Harriet, also killed herself when she was discovered drowned in a lake in Hyde Park, London. When she was discovered, when her body was found in this lake, she was in the very advanced stages of pregnancy, despite the fact that she had been estranged from her husband, Percy, for like two years. So we don't know who the father was. I mean, I guess maybe there's a chance it was Percy or it could have been somebody else. But um, she was assumed to have also died by suicide. And then later... There was a suicide note that was discovered, and um, it's available on the internet, which, like, is so weird and eerie to me. Like, how in the world is this woman's suicide note from the 1800s, like, uploaded onto the World Wide Web for us to read today? That is just so dark and horrible. Um, I did not read the entire letter or straight from the letter, but I did read an article, a resource that had like taken a quote out of the suicide note. And I'm not going to like read it verbatim, but the note basically stated that she was really miserable in her life, like extremely miserable on a level that like no one could understand and that she hoped that her family and friends would find comfort in knowing that she was no longer having to live life in misery. And she also called out Percy Shelley and basically said like, yo, maybe it wouldn't have ended up this way if you didn't fuck me over so bad and humiliate me and make me the laughing stock of the town. But she also included that she did forgive him for all that he had done. So I do think it's important that we kind of look into this a little deeper because this is now the second time in this story that we have seen a woman attempt suicide as a result of being abandoned by their husbands and lovers. We saw this happen in... Mary's mother's story, where the American lover that she had and got pregnant with Fanny by had abandoned her and she had attempted suicide as a result of that. Now we're seeing it again with Harry after, you know, Percy just did all of the unthinkables to her. And I think it's interesting because while it seems like such an extreme length to take, I mean, especially in 2021, like, who is not getting fucking divorced or cheating on their spouses? Like, I feel like it's the most common thing on earth and, like, not even remotely shocking. And people don't even, like, get public shame over it, like, at the extent that you think maybe they would. It's just become such a common thing in our society that, like, it's like, oh, wow, he cheated or, oh, she cheated. Like, fuck, that sucks. And then we're over it. 
But back in the 17 and 1800s, like, people were so fucking conservative and so stuck up and so, like, terrified of anything outside of this American dream in life, man, woman, children, marriage. Like, I'm sure religion played a very heavy role in creating those, like, dynamics and those norms. But, you know, the women that were left by their men were shamed just as hard as the men were, like as if it was their fault or as if they were fucking garbage tossed to the side of the road. And I think, you know, it was a level of public humiliation that was so extreme that, you know, we couldn't even imagine what that was doing to these women's mental health and self-worth. And I, I just think it's it's so sad. It is so sad. It's like the original bullying to think that a society would shame and bully a woman so horribly to the point they have to take their own life because their husbands left them. I cannot even imagine. And I sympathize so much for all of the women during this time period that went through this. It's unimaginable and it makes me so sad and I just feel so sorry about this. And um, a lot of other people did, too, when they found out that Harriet took her own life. And they blamed Percy and Mary. They were, like, looking right at them and being like, really, guys? Really? And it further ostracized them from the community that had already hated them and ostracized them. But, like, oh, apparently that wasn't difficult enough for these two fucking idiots because they got married, like, two weeks later. They waited like a full two weeks for Harriet to pass away and like the, you know, the mumble and grumble to die down before they hit the aisle and uh, tied the knot. But it wasn't all about romance and love in Disney Channel original movie. They had an ulterior motive. Well, Percy had an ulterior motive. So Harriet's last dying wish was that she wanted her own sister to take care of her children. She was like, Percy, fuck you. I'm I'm taking my own life. You're a dick. But if you could do one last thing for me, it would be giving my sister custody of our children because she can take better care of them than your fuck it ratchet ass can. Now, um, would Percy ever do anything for Harriet? Of course not. Of course not. So he married Mary with intent to get full custody of his children, knowing he would have a better chance of accomplishing that if he had a wife. (sighs) I'm so pissed. I am so pissed. But also, that just didn't work because Percy was deemed an unfit father, caretaker, and uh, people were like, you can't raise these children. You have a lackluster social life. You have radical views on society. You are not allowed to take care of these two children. You'll ruin their lives and destroy their brains. And so they were put up into foster care and given away to foster parents instead of being in the hands of their aunt who loved them and knew them and cared for them. And that is something that Percy allowed to happen. God, can we hate this guy anymore? Like, can we hate him any fucking more? Like I said, the worst thing to happen to Mary and Harriet and everybody else on planet Earth. 
So let's like check in on Claire real quick because like we haven't heard from her in a while and you know like shit's just hitting the fan with Claire. So she was pregnant by Lord Byron. And remember, they were, like, keeping her a secret, not letting anybody know she was pregnant. So she eventually gives birth to Lord Byron's child, which is a little girl that they named Allegra. And remember, Lord Byron never liked Claire to begin with. He was like, ugh, whatever, I'll, I'll just be with her to, like, get it over with because, like, who doesn't love a little P in the V? And then she got pregnant. He was like, dear Lord, did that really just fucking happen? I'm screwed. So... Once their baby was born, he, like, kind of pulled some shady shit and was like, listen, Claire, we all know that I can take far better care of this baby than you can because, uh, I mean, let's face it, you're born in a family of, like, the most hideous people on planet Earth. Like, I can't let you take care of our baby. Like, you are trash. So she basically is like, okay, and hands her baby off to Lord Byron. And, um... He gets full custody. So, like, keep in mind, they're in two different countries. She's, like, in England, and he's, like, in Switzerland or Italy somewhere. So she, like, goes over to whatever country he's in, passes off Allegra to him, heads back home, and basically just gives up her kid. Now, just like Percy, this motherfucker made a real big mistake because instead of raising his own child... He just passed Allegra off to a convent of nuns and was like, hey, uh, raise this baby and do it well. But um, it didn't really pan out as he'd wished because Allegra ended up contracting typhus at the convent and she died by the age of five. And before she died, within the years of like being born to age five, Claire had reached out numerous times, regretting what she'd done, wanting to, like, get back with her daughter, wanting to figure out how she could at least have partial custody or see her child, which never happened. And then she died. Really fucking sad shit for everybody in this story. Holy hell. Like, I'm telling you, the 1800s were a rough time to be alive. So bad. Then in 1822, Mary has her last and final miscarriage. So this is like her fifth pregnancy ends in a miscarriage. Like, dear Lord. And this same fucking year, right after she miscarries, Percy, good old charming Percy, dies in a total freak accident at 24 years old. I mean, to be honest, that's the best thing that's happened yet. He was like, had gone off to see friends and had to, like, travel via boat to visit these friends somewhere. And on his way back, a storm hit, and he got thrown overboard and drowned, along with everybody else on the boat. Mary had no idea that this even happened until his body washed up on shore and the authorities were like, whoa, Percy's dead. (sighs) I'm telling you, the amount of trauma this woman has gone through in such short amounts of time, it's unimaginable. So after this happened, Mary tried to contact Percy's rich family and was like, um, your son died and I have his child and like, we need help. And the dad was initially just like, you've got to be kidding me, bitch. Are you seriously calling me right now asking me for money? So he 
at first was like, absolutely not. You're never going to get a dime from me. We hate you. Like, screw you. And then he eventually came around and was like, okay, wait, I don't want my grandson to be poor and live a horrible life of poverty. I will support the child and the child only. So he was funneling them some money, I believe, that did help put their child in to school and um, ultimately allowed them to live a very basic, sustainable lifestyle on the small amount of money that the father was uh, funneling to them. And um, at this point, Mary was alone with her child without Percy and the entire world really did not like her. I mean, not the entire world, but like Europe, (laughs) England, like her entire like community, people were really not fond of this woman. And um, she started to feel really shitty about it. She uh, started to like reflect on her life and be like, holy hell, how did I end up here? Why does my family hate me? Why does the entire world hate me? My husband's dead. Like, what's going on? There were multiple suicides. I've lost all these babies. Like, what in the world happened? Like, how did this freaking happen? And so she was really like thinking about her life and realizing like, oh, my God, I'm going to be living a life of complete and utter loneliness. What have I done? And so she goes back to Percy's rich dad and is like, listen, I want to write a biography about Percy's about Percy and his life. And I want to use that income to help me at least get more money to kick off my writing career again and, you know, to help me just like try to paint a better light of us and my husband. And so the rich dad agreed and he was like, "Okay, like, yeah, you can write this biography, but I swear to God, you cannot write one fucking scandalous shit in this book. I will not have it. Every word in this book needs to say good things about my son. Like, you will not continue to further damage our reputation. And she was like, no, I promise. Like, I won't do that, which is funny because remember her dad, William, wrote a biography about the mom, Mary, and wrote so much scandalous shit that just like kicked off their bad reputation. So Mary knew, like, I can't repeat history because I know how that panned out. So she agreed, wrote this biography, wrote all great, fantastic things about Percy. I can't even imagine what bullshit she had to make up and uh, published the book. And it, it, you know, helped her get a little money on the side. And after this, she decided to rewrite Frankenstein. Like she went back to her original writings of Frankenstein and, you know, jazzed it up a little bit and decided that uh, she was going to figure out how to make this story a little bit more conservative and appease the public and make them, you know, accept her and the book since originally no one was having it because her father's name was tied to it. So she revised it, made a second version, which was like way more approachable and society felt a lot better about reading it and, you know, supporting the story. And really, like, it's just further proof that she was trying so hard to make a change in her life and transition into like a better future with like less resistance and less hatred and less hardship. And... um. It was really hard for her to actually accomplish that because it turned out that, like, all of the damage that had been done was almost impossible to repair. 
she attempted to date and had hopes of remarrying, but nothing ever panned out because, you know, guys would date her, but then eventually they'd be like, I'm never going to marry you because you are who you are. And so they'd leave her for other women. This happened so many times to Mary that, like, again, her reputation could not be salvaged. And she ultimately spent the rest of her life unmarried and alone with her son. She continued to write a ton. She traveled a lot and just lived a pretty basic life you know, in with the least amount of drama. As she got older, she eventually developed a slow-growing tumor in her brain, and she ultimately died of brain cancer on February 1st, 1851, at 53 years old. She was laid to rest with the cremated remains of Percy's heart. Gnarly. And um, it was roughly... A century after she passed away that another one of her novels was published and became, you know, like her second most popular book after Frankenstein. This was called Matilda and it was released in 1950. So I guess really that became popular first. And then like several years after that, Frankenstein sort of like reemerged in the 80s and you know, people were like, hey, guess what? This book, like this is fucking rad. Let's make it our Halloween staple forever. So one thing to note, this Matilda book that she wrote, uh, she had actually written it after suffering numerous miscarriages, as well as the two suicides of Fanny and Harriet. So this book was written during like the darkest times of her entire life. And it is jam packed with pain, trauma, and themes of death, suicide, depression, and incest. I believe the main character in the book is like recounting her life on her own deathbed. So very dark and dark, gnarly, like pretty gnarly. And then, of course, as we know it, her lasting legacy remains with the classic tale of Frankenstein. However, most people don't even know who Mary Shelley is unless you're kind of like a book or history nerd. And people, for the most part, learn about Frankenstein through all of the movie adaptations that have been made over the years, not from the book itself, which is kind of common, I'd say, especially in, you know, the world we live in today. Frankenstein's first theatrical adaptation took place in 1823, followed by many, many, many adaptations throughout the 20th century, many of which you have all seen and loved. And um, over the course of the 19th century, Mary Shelley came to be seen as a one-novel author, as I'd mentioned earlier, rather than the professional writer that she was. However, like today, scholars now consider Mary Shelley to be a major romantic figure and significant for her literary achievement and her political voice as a woman and as a liberal. And that, my friends, is the story of Mary Shelley, the author of everyone's beloved Frankenstein. (sighs) I need like a deep breath and to meditate after this. What a story. What a life. Oh my God. Like, I can't even believe the majority of this shit is real and it really happened. And like, you know, while we sit here and we listen to the story and we like 
make our snarky comments and we have our opinions and we laugh at certain points or we say, oh my God, this lady's life is batshit crazy, like I've said many times in this podcast episode. I do think it's important to always remind ourselves that like, these are real people. They existed in the real world. These were their lives. And that is fucking sad. That is hard. That is like a hard pill to swallow. And I think like, you know, as wild as this story was, these these were real things that happened in the world. And this was the 1800s. And this is just one story in this time period. I can't imagine how many other people's stories were similar to this or involved some of the same situations, events, experiences. And God, what hard times. But um, I hope you enjoyed that or at least learned something fascinating about, you know, the backstory to what created Frankenstein. And, you know, this Halloween, I hope when you see pictures of Frankenstein or we rewatch those movies on Netflix or, you know, maybe read the book to think about this woman behind the story that you and I all know and love today in 2021. It's truly fascinating that most of us, if not all of us, could have some type of nostalgic tie to something in our childhood, such as Frankenstein, and have no freaking clue the backstory behind this nostalgic memory. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm like mind blown. Like, this is behind Frankenstein? Oh my God. You know, totally fascinating and tragic and sad, but history. That's history, isn't it? All right. Well, I hope you guys all have a really fantastic Halloween and get into that basic pumpkin fall life because, God, it is fantastic. I sure as hell love it. Thank you guys again so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed learning a little more about the backstory and the history of some of our favorite Halloween characters. And I hope you enjoyed hanging out with me on this solo episode. If you enjoyed this episode, if you learned something fascinating and new today, and you have friends out there that you think would love this, send this podcast episode to them via text message, via email, share it on social media, tell your neighbor. Word of mouth recommendations are truly the most effective and helpful way to support this podcast. Thank you so much. Happy Halloween, and I will see you next time. Bye.